Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, singing respect to great effect. Muscle Shoals and the Queen of Soul and Columbia's Mists is Atlantic's Bliss. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Well, hello, Tapsters, and welcome to this episode of This is Vinyl Tap. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be looking at an album released in 1967 by Aretha Franklin. I never loved a man the way that I love you. And it's a kind of a milestone album for her. It's the first one that she released on the Atlantic label. And uh, it was definitely a breakthrough for her, uh, the first lady of soul. And tonight we're coming to you a little more remote than usual. Our host, Doug Cooper, is broadcasting from the home of This Is Vinyl Tap, the Vinegar Rune Saloon in uh, mid-Austin, Texas. Good evening, Doug. Thank you, J.M., for that kind introduction. And I would just like to say that she is not the first lady of Seoul. She is the queen. She is not married to the king of Seoul. Oh, she is the queen of Seoul. That's right. <laughs> Although she, uh, the, the, the man she was married to would like to think he was. Um, <laughs> and coming to you live from his grandfather's bass boat in South Austin, Texas, our co-host, Tony Slagle. Good evening, Tony. Good evening, everybody. And I'm your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, coming to you from a very snowy Estes Park, Colorado, although I'm not sure it's that much different from uh, Austin, Texas these days. Tonight, I hear you you guys got some uh, precipitation down there as well. (laughs) We're probably going to have to close everything down tomorrow (laughs) because it's going to be raining and under 40. Some of y'all that don't live in a place like this may not understand how severe those uh, conditions are. I know our Canadians, uh, uh, particularly those in Alberta, you know, Alberta is a huge supporter of this show. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we're Texas actually of Canada, right? Yes. We're actually getting shout outs on our uh, website through the email from Canadians. They're reaching out to us, telling, showering us with love. Well, tonight we are uh, sharing in your uh, frigid ways. We we were in solidarity. Um, we're one in cold. But we're listening to a hot album tonight. We're listening to a very hot, yes, it, it very much will. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're looking at an album by Aretha Franklin. Uh, many people believe this to be her best album, and it really is a landmark in popular music. Um, there's not many women that have made a bigger landmark than 
Aretha Franklin and especially at this time. And she really did kind of establish herself as the queen of soul at this point. And I'm not sure there's been a bigger, bigger figure in the soul movement, maybe Sam Cooke and maybe James Brown. But when you think of soul music, it's really hard to not think of Aretha Franklin. So this was an album that was picked by our host, Doug Cooper. So I'm going to yield the floor to Doug and ask Doug, fine album. Uh, I'm sure it's one that many people were expecting us to look at at some point. But um, I'm going to ask you, why did you pick this album for This Is Vinyl Tap? Well, as you know, I've suffered with the misogyny on this program, and (laughs) I've been fighting hard against it from my my lonely position. But uh, that's that's one reason. No, seriously, the I picked this record because I love this record and I know how important it is. This is one of those records that is so influential that you can't hear its influence because it changed everything. And people our age were born after the change had happened. Yeah. So we, when we listen to it, we cannot unhear everything that it has influenced. So we, it's harder for us to understand how different it is. Mm-hmm. The, the best way to understand how remarkable this album is, is to listen to her Columbia catalog first. Somewhere over the rainbow. There's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. And then this is so completely different. This yeah. is her turning on a dime uh, and leaving the uh, her, I think the collection of songs right before this, it wasn't an album, it was a collection of songs, was uh, uh, Soul Lady. Mm-hmm. And it was anything but soul. Right. <laughs> it's it was almost Motown. I mean, um, I think you could almost say that at this point they were looking for a new Billy Holiday. And uh, well, that, that they, happened you know. at first. What is this thing called? You know, right. you know what, yeah. what song kind of epitomizes uh, that the Columbia approach to, to Aretha Franklin to me um, is there's a song, Some it's early on, so maybe it's not quite what they were trying to do before she left, but there's a song called Hard Time. The the song is two and a half minutes long, and she comes in in the last 30 seconds of it. So it's two minutes of this big band swinging big band instrumental, and that's great. But why an Aretha Franklin song 
yeah. has her on it for 30 seconds is is beyond me. But that's that's yeah. kind of that, that kind of epitomizes the approach to me. Um, I want to I want to say something. I just want to get this out. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware of my relationship with this music, but prior to listening to this album for this podcast tonight, I have never fully listened to an Aretha Franklin album. Wow. <gasps> and, uh, and I can honestly say um, prior to listening to, prior to doing this, this podcast, I um, would have said that this is music that I don't particularly care for. And while I understand its importance and I understand uh, how talented she is and how talented the people around her were, it's something I just couldn't get. And, and so I, I just briefly wanted to kind of talk about that concept. Cause we've all been, we've all been there before where people have, recommended something to us or we've seen a list or there's albums that we should quote unquote know and love and we just Mm -hmm. don't quite get them and um and this particular artist has been that way for me for um my entire musical listening life now Hmm. um the reason i bring that up is because i had a weird experience listening to this album that I'll get to when we get to the point in the album that happened, but it fundamentally changed my opinion of this artist in a way that I was not expecting at Mm. all. And so um, while Doug mentioned not listening, not understanding or not being able to listen to this with the understanding of where, you know, what, what it was doing. And I think he's right. I don't, there's no way I can quite do that because so much has come after it. I will say that this was, uh, this was, this was literally like me. Well, not literally like it was me literally hearing something for the first time outside of two songs on this album, which were respect and do right woman. I had not heard any other song on this album. Oh, really? The title track, which was a Mount Monster hit. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for the listening public out there uh, who wants to, you know, uh, sit in <laughs> shock as I say this, it's, I mean, it's just the way it is. I, I just, this was not, this was not my, but was not music I listened to. And to be honest with you, I felt a little bit like we were thrown in the deep end with sharks swimming around us. I, I feel, I, I know Doug <laughs> often talks about how we don't want to, how it's, it'll be hard for us to do a jazz album because we don't quite understand that. And I think Doug, you even mentioned when we did the Ray Charles album, how we were just kind of on the precipice of being in our comfort zone. And I kind of feel the same way about this album tonight, but the reason I think it's obviously worth talking about because it's a landmark album. It's, it's, um, it's an important album, but I don't understand what happened to me when I was listening to it. So, <laughs> so I want to talk about that too. I grew up um, listening to Aretha Franklin. My dad was an Aretha Franklin fan, but she, he was a bigger Roberta Flack fan. A stranger to my eyes, drumming my back with his fingers, singing my life with his Softly with his 
within the last couple of years, Aretha Franklin died in 2018. And I think that's when I just said, you know, I need to really start paying a little bit more attention to her. I mean, she's much more than freeway of love. <laughs> and 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 she's bigger than even respect. You know, respect is a, a fantastic song, but just. It's not even the best song on this album. Yeah, no. it's not even the best song on this album. Yeah. And um, she is so soulful. She was so, the, her knowledge of music, just listening to even her piano playing on this, um, which is the first album that she got to play piano on, I think. Jer- Jerry Wexler, the yeah. producer, just said he he she's got to play piano on this. And just some of the stuff that she's doing on piano on this is just, you know, it's so gospel, so um, it's so steeped in that gospel piano tradition. You look at Roberta Flack and you look at Aretha Franklin, both of them just have such an in-depth knowledge of chord substitution and gospel chords and progressions. And it's just amazing. So it was a little bit of a revelation for me within the last couple of years, but especially having to listen to it with a more discerning ear. These past couple of weeks, um, but right before we go into where we've been before, I would like to say the way I discovered Aretha Franklin is something that we've all been before, someplace we've been before on this podcast. There's a particular movie that we've discussed numerous <laughs> times. <laughs> Jake and Elwood. That's yep. right, the Blues Brothers, and something happened to me. When I saw that movie, mm-hmm. I fell in love with all the music in that movie. And yeah. and uh, it made me a huge Sam and Dave fan. Um, but <laughs> when Aretha sings, uh, think. Think, that <laughs> and blew me away. That's on her next Atlantic album, right? That's on her second Atlantic album. Yeah, it's her second one. And and that song, I agree, Doug. That song, even though, as I said prior to doing to listening to this, I wasn't the biggest Aretha Franklin fan. I always loved that song. Well, and mainly, I think because of that movie. <laughs> I'm I'm telling you, uh, when I saw that, I had never heard anything like that i'm getting shivers up my back right now thinking about it i had never seen someone with such complete control of the noise that was coming out of her mouth and Mm -hmm. she she was doing things that should not be possible for the human voice and she was projecting such power and self-assuredness it just blew me away when i heard that um Mm -hmm. That made me interested. And of course, like all of us do, you find out something you're interested in like that. You start looking into uh, what do the what do the critics say that's so great? Um, of course, uh, respect is easy, easily accessible. And some of the rest of this I did not find as easily uh, accessible as 
is those two songs. But eventually I got to the point where it wasn't that I was so much enjoying hearing the song, but I was enjoying the place the music put me in. And mm-hmm. then later I started getting this, oh, I've got to hear that song like you do normally with with some albums or I got to hear that again. I got to hear and that I, again. Yeah. I, I listen to the widest music you can possibly listen to, Power Pop, and I love it. <laughs> I, be, um, I believe I brought that up before. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so, you know, my my exposure to stuff like this is is very, very limited um, mm-hmm. to to various things. Um, I I came, I you know, I came to certain songs on this album, and we'll get to them, we get to them through Willie Nelson of all people. <laughs> Because the Columbia stuff to me, in my ear, and what I what I listened to was instantly more accessible. But I can understand why that didn't work for for Aretha Franklin. Well, you didn't need her for it. You absolutely right. did not. She exactly. wasn't doing anything new. She there was, was nothing I mean, new you there. Can, uh, Donna Summer, yeah. uh, not Donna Summer. I said, well, what's the other one? Uh, Dionne Warwick. Dionne Warwick. Do, well, Dionne Warwick, but more than that. Um, Diana Ross could have done all that Columbia stuff, which, and, you, you know, she does that one song, Shoop Shoop, the Shoop Shoop song, yeah. mm-hmm. which is uh, for those of you who uh, don't uh, recognize that, that's the it's in his kiss song. probably a three million people have covered and you don't need you don't need an aretha franklin to do it's in his kiss uh yeah. even though she does it very well but that's not what she's for uh, i'm yeah i'm sorry you were about to agree with I was, me i cut you off i, I, I was gonna agree with you. I was, I was absolutely right because when you hear the vast difference between what this sounds like and what she was doing for columbia nobody could do nobody. this yeah, this, um, none of this those is... others could transfer into this. But before we go any further. <laughs> I believe we we've been here before. Been before. Yeah. All right, guys. Now, we probably could name almost every album we've covered before. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, there are some big ones and there are some interesting ones. Um, let, who wants to start? All right, I'll start with Spooner Oldham. Uh, Spooner Oldham plays keyboards on this and he played with uh, Neil Young on Harvest Moon. Well, that's um, one I didn't have. So you get two points for that, Jam. All right. Uh, Sam Cook wrote two songs. On and. This. Uh, Sam Cook, uh, oh, was came out well, of the church and yep. was a crossover artist, the same way Aretha Franklin is. Uh, well, okay, Sam- here's another one. Uh, Sissy Houston, who sings on this album, was a member of the Sweet Inspirations with uh-huh. Sam Cook. And Aretha uh, Franklin had a crazy crush on Sam Cook, and yep. whenever she saw him play, she thought she was going to pass out. Mm-hmm. Since, and her dad uh, didn't and her dad didn't like that since and... uh since uh <laughs> since jam mentioned chip's moment i'll bring him up there are two connections with something we've done previously one is um he co-founded american sound studio 
mm-hmm. which uh, was where the box tops um, recorded. Yep. And he basically he, guided their career. He did. And he co-wrote. Now, I know we didn't we didn't do this this particular song, but we, we didn't did mention it. Star. We didn't we didn't mention this. He yep. co-wrote Luke and Bach, Texas. Let's go to Luke and Bach, Texas. Wailing and Willie and the boys This successful life we're living Got us feuding like the Hatfields and McCoys He did. Oh, it's true. We're on a different track. Which That's is what a Waylon Jennings song. Tell you, this could go on forever. Right. Um, back to Sam Cooke. Uh, Aretha Franklin's husband shot Sam Cooke's brother. That's right. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Shot him in um, the groin. Oh, geez. So what What about another big obvious one? Uh, Mr. Bobby Dylan, Mr. Bruce Springsteen, and Stevie Ray. Oh, uh, John Hammond discovered John Hammond Aretha, discovered signed Aretha all Franklin. three of those and Aretha. Yeah. And true. one of the, the important thing on John Hammond is that first album, he thought she was going to be another Billie Holiday doing jazz tunes. Yeah. And uh, he <laughs> he got kicked he missed off that of the production pretty early, and they <laughs> that's when her husband uh, wanted Dead to white. go back to uh, the, the church tunes. Interesting is Derek and the Dominoes. Dwayne Almond played on an Aretha Franklin album, didn't he? Yeah, he eventually became. He played on a couple of her big yeah. big. Numbers. I think he Did probably got up. he probably got connected to her through King Curtis because he played on King Curtis albums too. Well, and Muscle Shoals, he was Muscle a Shoals. session player at Muscle Shoals. So yeah. I think that's a good segue into the players on this album, which basically reads like a who's who of soul and R and B. You've got like we were mentioning earlier, you got songs written by Sam Cooke and Otis Redding. Uh, Otis Redding was huge in the Stax label, but he. Uh, recorded some at uh, Muscle Shoals. You have the great uh, Dan Penn. Dan Penn has written so many amazing songs. Dark End of the Street being probably my favorite. He wrote... He's the one that wrote the... uh, the letter by the box top. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. And then you have Chips Moman, who is a fantastic guitar player, but was um, much more into recording people and guiding people's careers and uh, doing engineering work. But he does some great guitar work on this. And he's also a heck of a songwriter. Oh, great songwriter! <laughs> does he co-write "Do Right Woman" with? He does. Dan Penn, Dan Penn right. <laughs> And it's just, you know, if there's any way to describe this band, it, it is just tight. Um, well, who, let's let's call them by their name. All right. So you've got the great Spooner Oldham on keyboards, and he does some amazing work on this. And I also want to say that this was kind of an album that put the Mus- Muscle Shoals band on the map as well. Well, there was a little bit of symbiotic. What do we call those guys? Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. What do we call those guys? They call them the Swampers. They're known yeah. as the Muscle Shoals Band, but they eventually got the nickname the Swampers. And one of the things that's surprising Muscle about- got the Swampers. They've been yep. known to play a song or two. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, so they, um, one of the things that's surprising about them is a lot of the Atlantic artists that were being signed at this time 
were expecting to play with because they were in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, were expecting to play with black musicians. Well, and they but, sounded that way, too. and they sounded that way too. And yeah, they almost almost every one of them are is white, which was cause for some consternation between Aretha Franklin's husband and and the yeah, and the we'll guys at that, one point. Uh, yeah, which is why they eventually did not record. I think they recorded two songs. One and a half. One and a half. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that story in a minute. But uh, like I said, Spooner Oldham on keyboards, amazing, amazing keyboard player. And Chip it, it ought to be pointed out. He's playing an electric piano and organ, I believe. Yeah. He's playing the yeah. Hammond, right? He's in the Hammond organ on this. Yeah. It's either a Hammond or a Lowry. I, I think it's a Hammond. All right. And uh, I, I point that out because I don't want anyone to think. He's the piano player. He's the, the piano, piano player. Yeah, no, it's it's Aretha. <laughs> it's Aretha it's not playing somebody the piano. Going, it's not Paul McCartney playing uh, "Let It Be." We're talking well, about. And, and just 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 stuff. real quick, since you brought it yeah. up, uh, uh, you know, JM talked about how Jerry Wexler just basically said to gave Aretha said, "You're gonna you want you to do this," because what what Columbia not only did they ignore her gospel roots, but they ignored the fact that she could play the piano. And yeah. what Jerry Wexler knew uh, just instinctively, I guess, was how much it would change the way she sang if she was mm -hmm. playing the piano right. as well. Well, he said, he said he saw her sit down at the piano and play. And he said, that's it. No, that's what she needs to do. She needs well, to sit and down at the piano. When they, they had that, I can't remember who it was. It was supposed to instruct her on piano. Mm-hmm some famous guy and he came in and he goes nope <laughs> she's done <laughs> she's, she's got and, she, and she learned by ear i know uh, completely um, by ear. Learned to, uh, yeah we ought to point out uh, well i we're all over the place but her mother was an excellent pianist and yeah. uh, and uh mahalia jackson said her mom was a matchless gospel singer yeah. I mean, so, she had and she grew up and her dad was a very famous minister. Very famous. I mean, he was yeah. essentially in charge of the uh, to the ex extent when it happened, the civil rights movement in Detroit yeah. was based yeah. out of his church. Right. Well, and Aretha, this this could be another Forrest Gump. Oh, oh Forrest Gump. Oh, you mean? Uh, yeah, you're right. This is just well, like the Pretenders, and uh, but that a lot of that. I mean, a lot of that had just had to do with the fact that her dad was such a. Uh, well, no, it's absolutely why it had to do with that. But was, it's extraordinary that Art Tatum's in her living room playing the piano, and then yeah. oh, Sam Cooke comes over and says, "I wish I could play the piano like that." And that Mahalia Jackson's taking care of her when her mom leaves. And then, yeah, I mean, it just goes on and on. Her dad's dating. Uh, what's her face? Um, oh, yeah. What's her name? Dan Dinah Washington. God. Oh, God. That's a, there's another amazing That's another voice. Amazing <laughs> voice. Yeah, let's talk about some more of these guys. There's yeah. Roger Hawkins on drums. Oh, my God. That guy is just I, I love his plan. He's one of my favorite drummers of all time and then you have this guy named tommy cowgill who um Did actually he ever play with anybody uh, <laughs> he played with just about everybody uh and not just bass and the bass playing on this album is fantastic well I, I, when you read that this guy influenced jaco pistorius yeah you kind yeah. of you kind of realize he knew what he was doing on the he bass, knew what he right? was doing right and it's just every note is so clear on this he 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 
I think he makes this album. To be honest with you, this the, the back end that he oh, he throws he behind it. Exaggerating yeah. the bass player again. <laughs> I know. I know. And then you've got. I, I I believe you ought to mention that he played with Elvis. Yeah, uh, he played well. So did Chip Smallman and, and Dusty uh, Springfield and yep. oh, Michael man. Murphy. You get you got more to talk about, JM. You, well, you got the great King Curtis on the saxophone who uh, was not only a fantastic sax player, but also a, a hell of an arranger. He did all the, the horn arrangements on this. And well, uh, the guy, yeah. the guy played the, he plays the solo on Yakety Yak. Don't hold back. Buddy Holly wanted him to play with him, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. and he played with Waylon. And he's on, I know you love this, uh, Doug. He plays on, he's on the Imagine album. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope he was well paid. Well, how about, yeah. how about Jimmy Johnson? Great. Jimmy Johnson um, used to play with Stacks. Just great backbeat. Um, I mean, I won't, I won't hold against him that he, that he engineered sticky fingers. That's, that's a black mark <laughs> against him. But other than that, Hey, I well, got, well, I got a question about King Curtis, Tony. Mm-hmm. Ah, uh, yes. I believe that's why we know so much about this album. He right. was born in the great city of Fort Worth, Texas. Well, tell me about that. Uh, I am Terrell high school. They must have had one great band director because Ornette Coleman came out of there, too. Yeah, they were buddies. So anyway, if you wonder why we're experts on this. I mean, you basically could have made a documentary of everybody that has played on this album. And there have been documentaries made about some of these guys. I believe we've mentioned the Muscle Shoals documentary before, which is very good. And then, of course, our sisters are... Oh, we haven't got to the singers yet, right? (laughs) You've got... um, Aretha's sister Carolyn, who actually was a great songwriter as well, she wrote co-wrote uh, two of the songs on this album. With Van and Morrison, her, <laughs> <laughs> and her sister Emma, both of them um, went on to have their own careers. But right. uh, Carolyn, actually, I think um, she's had a yeah, she had a pretty she, good, very successful, the, very successful songwriter and singer. Yeah. Um, and then there is Sissy Houston, who many of you will know as the mother of Whitney Houston, but she's won Grammys in her own right, um, came out of the gospel predi- tradition. She really kind of stayed in that area, but she has sung on so many albums. Chances are, if you've got, if there's a backup singer on any album uh, that you own from the 70s or 80s, um, she's on it. So the the thing that makes this album sort of remarkable is that these people are all immensely talented, but what they're doing is adding color to something oh, yeah. to, to something that is. I mean, or, it, this is not this is not a crutch for Aretha Franklin. No, this is adding color to what she's trying to do. 
And, uh, and that's, that's important because, um, you know, a lot of people would say, well, of course this album's great. And it, and that's not to knock any of these amazing musicians on it. Of course it's great because of them. It's, it's almost great in spite of them because of her piano playing and singing on it, you know, her piano playing is one of the things that I think is amazing about this album is how subtle the playing is behind her, even though, um, you've got these amazing players, they know when to, 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 to not interfere with what Aretha's doing. How the best way to describe that phenomena is to talk about what happened when she walked in to fame studios, <laughs> sat down at the bench on the piano and hit a couple of chords and the whole room became <laughs> quiet and astonished. Yeah. And they realized Shannon sung yet. And they realized something incredible was about to happen. And then yeah. she opened her mouth and yeah. they, they figured out they were part of something really big. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she had what, this is her 10th album. First for Atlantic, but, but a, a lot of these guys had not heard a thing about her before. Well, right. that's because she was um, she Doing was sort of relegated thing. to the R&B charts um, and, and spottily. So her albums, I mean, she had hits for Columbia, but it wasn't I mean, it wasn't like what happened when when out of the gate with Atlantic. I think her first five albums on Atlantic are all considered fantastic. Yes. albums. Yeah, it's not out of the park. And, and they, yeah, not, she knocked him out of the park. And, and it's. I mean, how, we've talked about this before. We've been here before where somebody just doesn't get it. And they're yeah. trying to put this artist that this immense talent into this other sort of place. They're trying to force them into something yeah. and they just don't get it. And once this artist is able to have their own, you would think mm-hmm. that people, yeah, this story is so old, you would think people would just understand it, but they don't. I mean, it's no, and they don't. And, and that brings us to the producer. Yeah. Jerry Wexler. The guy it, who got it. <laughs> I don't know if there's ever been a guy that understands artists better than Jerry Wexler. He has done so much for so many people. Uh, let's everyone. He produced Willie Nelson's phases and stages. One of my favorite albums, uh, of course, Aretha Franklin. He basically discovered Led Zeppelin. I mean, he recognized that there was something going on with Led Zeppelin. He was influential in getting them signed to Atlantic Records. I mean, this is a guy that knows bands and knows how to be hands-off. Has Jerry Wexler ever made a a faux pas? Has he ever made just a a crappy album? I can't think of anything off of my um, head. If he did, it was probably with an extremely talented artist that was just having a bad go. We got Ray Charles. He's worked with Ray Charles, Allman Brothers. Yeah, Rolling Stones. Okay, you um, mentioned the Almond Brothers and the Rolling Stones. There's two, <laughs> Bob two Dylan against him right there. Dusty, yeah, Bob Dylan, Dusty Springfield, Dusty Springfield. I forgot that. That was going to be. I forgot my, about uh, that one. Yeah, I was going to put that on the connection. Dire Straits. Uh, um, and this is a guy who uh, changed <laughs> a very unfortunate <laughs> phrase to a very common phrase. You all know what it is. No. Well, he coined the uh, term rhythm and blues. Oh, yeah, that's right. He was working at Billboard, and they were calling it race music. Uh, um, uh, and he he didn't like that, and he yeah. changed it to rhythm and blues, which, uh, of course, became the dominant. 
Um, there's, and, there's a definite distinction between what this stuff sounds like compared to what was coming out of Motown. And, oh, and, that's, that's the, that's part of the story. You know, Wexler goes to Memphis and he sees he's he says he's bored. He's lost his interest and he goes to Stack Studios and these guys aren't using charts like he always did. And they got all this energy and, and basically the band that's about to become Booker T and the MGs is making noise like he's never heard before. And he falls in love with it. Speaking of the and, Blues uh, Brothers, <laughs> he. <laughs> He gets sideways with stacks somehow, which is what causes him to go seek out um, Muscle Shoals. And then he finds that sound something similar down there. This isn't how it is, but it's kind of how it is. Aretha was born in Memphis, goes up to Detroit. She starts out, eventually gets into this sort of uh, Motown sound, and then she leaves and comes down back to her roots in Memphis with that Memphis uh, sound, Southern sound, and all that polish of Motown gets scraped off, and we mm-hmm. get this fantastic album. That's a did horrible you, oversimplification. It, yeah, but it but makes sense. I mean, did was, you know? You know, she is from both of these great music towns. She was from the Stax town, and then she moved to the Motown town. Yeah. Well, and and I, I find it very fascinating that she actually had an offer from Barry Gordy pre Motown. Yeah, he had, a, he had a label called Tamla Records. Yeah. And her dad, her dad didn't think it it was worthy of her, his daughter, yeah. and so he yeah. said no. But that would have been an interesting thing um, mm-hmm. had he had had she signed with them instead of Columbia. I mean, who knows what would have yeah. happened? I I don't know if she would have had success with them either. But it just would have been interesting. I think the other thing that was significantly missing in in what she was doing with Columbia was just the fact that even though she was doing secular music now, it was that whole gospel. Um, right. That's absolutely the, the core of this this gospel. This the emotion and the and the and the and the just range. The chord structure, no, the chord yeah. structures of the songs that she was just, yeah. just listen to her piano playing on this. I mean, the, I I'm not trying to response and yeah. The, uh, and yeah. the freedom for her voice to do what it can do in gospel and can't do in pop music. I I like gospel music a lot. And I listen to more Aretha Franklin doing gospel than I do Aretha yep. Franklin doing secular music. The, what Tony is saying about the gospel is absolutely true. When they yeah. took out that, they took out her essence. But when Columbia yeah. gets a hold of Aretha Franklin and just sanitizes her, yeah. You know, says she's not playing the piano again. I just I, I find it fascinating not being a musician. But Jerry Wexler knew that sitting her behind the piano was going to change the way she sang and approached music. That's fascinating to me. And, he well, was you know, this on. is John Hammond thought she was going to be Billie Holiday. Right. It's yeah. like he thought Springsteen was going to be Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Right. And he put a he put a restrictor on both of their uh, productions right. and really delayed what was inside of them from coming out. All right. So let's start with side one, song one, Respect.
written by the great Otis Redding. Recorded on Valentine's Day, 1967. Okay, this is probably, the, it, it is the definitive version, and I love it. Fantastic song. Love the background vocals, the guitar part that comes in on it. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to talk about the impact this had, not just on the music world, but just on it, just the, the soul world. Well, not just that, but just politically as well, because Otis Redding's song was not about any sort of real empowerment. It was, you know, it was this kind of plea to this lover to respect him. And Aretha Franklin takes it and turns it into this, you know, women's liberation kind of anthem about about treating her with with, you know, I I just I mean, (laughs) this demand, this demand. She turned the the whole thing around. um, I, I I think this I call this one of the two greatest covers of, mm-hmm. of all time in yep. rock and roll or R&B. Can, y'all know what the other one is? All Along the Watchtower. Oh, um, by yeah, Jimmy Hendrix. Hendrix. Yeah. You know, uh, it's funny when you say that because uh, <laughs> when uh, Otis Redding heard this version and after it became a hit, a, he he essentially. Uh, told um, Wexler that it wasn't, it was not his song anymore. Even though yeah. he played it, he played it after she recorded it. He played it at the Monterey Pop Festival in 67. Right. And he told the yeah. crowd that too. He said, This is this girl, this girl, this friend of mine took this song away from me, just took it. It's not mine anymore. <laughs> and he's right. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, uh, it's amazing that he could, that he'd still play it after she did. Well, and then, you know, the oh. whole deal about spelling it out, which is kind of the, the kind right. of the climax of the whole deal. They added right. that just like, whoop, let's just pop that in there. It's just amazing. Well, yeah. and the and the re 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 thing was a, a nod to her because that was her nickname. Well, well, who in the hell did the uh, where, where's the socket to me come from? I've, I've never. Uh, Aretha I mean, came up with that. Aretha yeah. came up with that. Um, socket socket to, me, to me is not in the the, the <laughs> culture as much as it should be anymore. Ever yeah. since the demise of laughing. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I, I will say there's an interesting story about the saxophone solo on this song. Oh, God. So Char- Charlie yeah. Chalmers was supposed to play it because he plays on this song alongside King Curtis yeah. and Willie Bridges. And he was he, on all the takes prior to them laying this one down. He plays a solo. And Chalmers said in an interview that when it came up, he was ready to play. And Curtis jumped in and took it over. <laughs> and it was so it was so good that he's like, I, okay, that's it. All right. It was the right thing to do. Well, but, I don't um, understand. How did they? It, it changes keys there. Well, it's here's like, the uh, other interesting thing about it. The night before he lays it down, King Curtis evidently played a saxophone on "When Something Is Wrong with My Baby," which is a Sam and Dave song. Yeah, and and he played. Uh, a saxophone riff similar to this one that the solo is based on. And yeah. he just decided to bring it into the song and Aretha liked it, but yeah, he just jumped. He just basically uh, leapfrogged um, oh, Charlie wow. Chalmers. I, a lot of the work I did on this record, I passed by that song just because you've heard it. So I've times. heard it so many times. I, it, I, yeah. I listened to it a couple of times to pick out some, some things about it but um if it's just everywhere i was even kentucky fried chicken commercial 
yeah, I know, but um, I I didn't realize it changed keys on that on that solo and then jump back to the um, the original key. So as we mentioned when we were first talking about this four hours ago, um, <laughs> that uh, that this this is an even, in my opinion, close to the best song in this album. It was the second number one on the yep. album yep. Um, and her last number one until 1987's I Knew You Were Waiting For Me with George Michael. Um, oh, she really? Didn't another, she didn't have another number one, uh, at least in the in the pop charts. Uh, wow. Uh, for that long. But uh, yeah, I'm with you, Doug. The song is ubiquitous. And um, and it's I'll be honest with you. It's never been something that's grabbed me. Maybe maybe just because I've heard it so many times. I just like, oh, yeah, that's respect. So oh, I love this. I've always loved this song. I do really love gra- it, but it's it grabbed me the for every time I've heard it. Every time it's on, I get sucked in. It's a. Uh, it's yeah. so it's a great way to start an album. Well, it is a fantastic. I will, way I will to give tell you that. Everybody is, in Columbia, hey, yeah, something new is happening. Yeah, it screw is you, Columbia. It is in fact exactly that. Um, although, like I yeah. said, it wasn't the first single released. Um, that would be that. Before. That would be the title track, right. which is also kind of, I think, in a way, a big middle finger to Columbia. <laughs> All right, moving on to song number two on side one. Drown in my tears. This song is pretty damn great. <laughs> this may be my favorite song in the album. I absolutely love, love, love this song. Her. Her piano playing is amazing. Oh my her, god, it's unbelievable! It out for, for me, it stands out more on this song than any of the rest of them. Yeah, her, it really her, does, and it really showcases how acrobatic she can be with her voice. Uh, oh, it's you know, when yeah. Doug was talking about seeing her in the Blues Brothers and hearing the voice. Uh, you just when you listen to her on this song, there's so much going on there. Um, yeah. Oh, it, it's, it's almost it, it, not not in the same way, but it reminded me of when Doug was talking about um, about uh, Tom Waits and saying voices because mm-hmm. there's voices in this song. It's mm-hmm. not just a voice. There's voices, you know, um, and that and that that part at the end where the music fades out and she's pleading, don't let him do it. Oh, oh God. <laughs> yeah. This is written by a guy named Her- Henry Glover. Um, there's not a whole lot else known about him other than at the time he was one of the most successful uh, record executives in the around and he was black and he but he, he wrote this song but he didn't write a whole bunch of other stuff but he is responsible for just making so many people popular and but he was one of the most wealthy men in uh, recording arts at this time and uh, he died really early. The the one thing I want to bring up here, and this seems like as good a point, place to bring it up as any place, and I know I'm going to be the odd man out here, is um, there are points in this album where I find the backing vocals to be just a little overbearing, and they they get close to that on this song. See, I don't think that. I think that they... Well, I said I'd be the odd man out. Didn't I say <laughs> I that before I said that? So just um, enjoy being right, Tony. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, they, they, there's one song in particular that they really get to me, and I'll talk about that. They, they don't get to me on this song so much. They, they get kind of right up to that that tolerance point for me. And the reason why I, I, I just bring it up is because on the songs where it's just her, um, mm-hmm. I, I find those to be immensely more powerful than than the backing vocals, which just are distracting sometimes. That's all. I think it depends on your starting point. If you I were to find the backing at- vocals on almost all of these songs very understated, except for the first one. Well, I don't think they're understated, but I do think if you come at this from gospel, it yeah. sounds normal. If right. you come at this from uh, a different tradition, um, it, I can see exactly why Tony would think it was distracting because it is, which it's, there's quite a bit of input from the choir. There is. Right. And, and, right. And, right. and again, I, I freely throw myself under the bus and talk about my own biases when it comes to music. And I, as I said earlier, this is this album was in a new experience to me um, or for me. or uh, And actually, when we get to the epiphany moment to me as well. Um, and uh, and so it's just it's it's um, it's been it's been odd. And like I said, on this song, they just stood out in a way that. Um, like I said, they're not quite, they're not, they just push right up that envelope to me to being jarring. There's one song where I, um, they, I find them to be needless, but we'll get to that. We'll get to it. All right. All right. Moving on to song number three. All right. The first hit, the first single, I never loved a man a way that I love you. The title track. This was the first song recorded for the LP. And I think, is this the only one that was complete? This is the only one that was completed. This is the only I one think that it was. Finished. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what before uh, her husband started Actually, giving yes, Jerry was a, her help? A conflict. Well, that's, yeah, that's on another song. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, it, this is why. This so is this, the uh, this, this is the only the- one that wasn't recorded in Atlantic uh New York, New York. Yeah, um, it's funny. Jerry Wexler said he knew immediately this was going to be a hit, and it's it's I think understandable. I find I find this song interesting, um, especially as a single because it is subject wise kind of the polar opposite of respect, right? You know? And right. and and that's one of the things that makes this album kind of remarkable is the range in it's it, it it switches kind of effortlessly from this this person who's vulnerable um to this person who's strong as all all get out which um, is out but, she, but, but yeah. it is so amazing that she hits on something where you just think you're so confident and uh got all that and then there's just somebody that does something to you so this makes you a little puppy dog Spooner Oldman on this song. Oh my God. He is <laughs> um, so good. That's the He's second got... time I've mentioned somebody and JM's had to control himself. Uh, oh, I love but, that Worlder Well, 
piano and, he starts off on. And there's a great little bit where he says that when this song came up, nobody knew what to do with it. Like they're all sitting around staring at each other, trying to figure out yeah. what to do. And he heard that that little Woolitzer riff in his head and yeah. he started playing it. And everybody just That's fell it. in behind him. <laughs> and, and, and then and that, and Dan Penn, piano. Well, Dan Penn yells, uh, yells, Spooner's got it. Um, or no, yeah. I'm sorry, not Dan Penn. It was Wexler who said Spooner's got it. And so they all jump in and start playing after it. Um, and uh, yeah, it just, it's a oh, it's and, such a cool little riff. And then I, I, I'm a sucker for two keyboards. I never knew this song was a hit. Um, of course, I'd heard it many, many, many times, but it was always through de- uh, dedications from uh, yeah. various girls. And uh, <laughs> I was completely unaware of the fact that Lord. it was a hit. But there was a time in, in both kind of R&B and country music where the word fool was used a lot. <laughs> yeah, And it's not right. used nearly enough in popular music these well, days. Well, that's because it's, uh, scripture says you shouldn't use it. The way that she sings with a backup vocal. Yeah, they're perfect on this, on this song. Perfect, There's no, perfect, nothing, perfect. To, nothing to knock on, on the backup yeah, vocals they on work this song. Perfectly. And yeah. the horns are wonderful. Oh, the oh, horns are God. fantastic. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I agree. All right. Moving on to song number four, Soul Serenade. This is one on the list for me. Yeah. So this was an instrumental when it was written by Ken it Curtis is. and it Luke. Was. Just, I, so I didn't know I, who wrote it or anything, but it. I started sounding. I started thinking, this sounds like a Cannibal Adderley tune. It does. So exactly. I, you know who? You know what her vocal delivery reminds me of, though. On this, it's yeah, very Warwick. No, no. So it reminded me song. of. It's very Ray Charlesy. Her her delivery and her cadence on this song is very, very Ray Charlesy to me. Yeah, it is. You're right. Um, but I don't know who wrote the lyrics. I guess King Curtis did. I don't know. But it was an it's, it's every if you go and do a search for this song, every version of it is an instrumental. Hmm. Stay for this one and a couple other ones. So I don't know where the lyrics came from. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Yeah, mercy. it does. It, yeah. it does, and it's it's really it's probably the most jazzy and complicated tune so, on it. like there there's some weird stuff going on on this song if it weren't for the the song the big mystery song i keep referring to this would be my favorite song on the album probably this is it's such a, my, it's my favorite i love it when uh, it's everything goes down and she goes she you can just hear a voice almost by itself on you're not around yeah um, yeah <laughs> moving on to song number five don't let me lose this dream is an original by her and her lovely husband yep <laughs> ted white 
Now, it's just the most Burke Baccarat sounding it's a, song on it. I yeah. could hear, I, you know, I can't, I hate to keep comparing her to people, but because I'm sort of new to this, I guess I, I can't help it. But I could hear, this sounds like the Columbia stuff to me, this song. It does, particular. yeah. I, I, and I could hear Dionne Warwick on. singing this song. It sounds you know? a lot like a song written by Burke Baccarat that Dionne Warwick would cover. Yeah, and yeah. when when I first heard this, I kind of blew it off. And then I realized what I was doing. I was saying, this song has similar things to a genre of AM radio that I don't like. And I'm tossing it off because it reminds me of those things. Not because it's not good. And then I started thinking, you can't do that. That's that's like hating someone because they have the same shirt on as another guy you hate. (laughs) Well... I really, I really enjoy this song. It's a good song. And And I like the break it gives you. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and uh, again, not to bring up the background vocals, but they're, they're great on this song. They're perfect for this song. And, but, but I think going back to what we said, what you said, Doug, you hit the nail on the head about her stuff with Columbia. This is a good song, but it's not anything special. There's not, there's not, I mean, it's, it's, I, I get what you're saying about someone wearing the same shirt, but at the same time, Unlike the vast majority of everything else on this album, this is not something that, even though she co-wrote it, it's not Mm -hmm. something that necessarily is like, you know, somebody else could do this and probably do just as fine a job. Well, Well, there is there could have done it, but I I think it would have been pulled in a little bit. And um, yeah, maybe. Right. I don't know what that beat is. I don't either. That's the thing. Bossa Nova, but yeah, it's like like a Bossa Nova beat. Boston, but then it but then it drops. (laughs) All right, moving on to song number six, side one, baby, baby, baby. Southside ought to cover this song. (laughs) He really good. Say those babies. So this is uh, co-written by her and her sister. Right. Um, and this is a perfect example of a call and response that works really, really well. I do. I agree with you. And it's probably got my favorite instrumentation. This is the most, <laughs> other than respect, this has the most, uh, where the, the band kind of stretches out a little bit more than they normally do. Um, and and here her vocals are unlike anything else on this album. They're almost I, I don't I was trying to come up with the right word to describe them and I couldn't I put the word angelic down, but that doesn't quite. She's a little more vulnerable on this. Thing, yeah, man. yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's just uh, I think the instrumentation is incredible, but it, it really allows for the vocals to be a uh, be in the forefront. Yep. It's a fantastic song. It's a good song. I think the uh, I think the background singers mm-hmm. are equal or louder than she yeah. is. Yeah. And that helps someone with such a powerful voice give off some of that vulnerability that the song right. requires. Right. I I'm very curious if that just happened or if somebody figured that out while they're mixing it. I don't know, but it's uh it's an interesting effect because if you've got Aretha Franklin, and you want her to sound vulnerable, you have, um, that's a tough chore. Right. Right. That's a powerful voice. Yeah. 
Let's move on to side two. Doctor Feel Good. woman who's uh got some medical issues but thankfully has a good health care provider right this is my least favorite song on the album really well, oh yeah it's not my least favorite but if you had, i i thought this was an an otis Redding song to be honest with you I, I was i'll like, tell oh, you i tell you why i like this song a lot it's a secular gospel song. This song agree, sounds yeah. like she's yeah, testifying, yeah. but she's singing about sex. And it's, yeah. I, I love that juxtaposition. The Hammond organ on this song. Oh is so my God. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, I mean, it's like, yeah. it's almost like a, like you could hear this in church if it wasn't for the it's subject not, matter. No almost about it. All you have to do is change the words and it's a but gospel I, song. But I think that's what's 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 no, striking I, to me about it is that it's not a, it's about something that you would never sing about in church, but it's so it's got that delivery. It's I don't know. I, I, I um it, this is a surprising song on the album. I but I absolutely love it. It's I think it's my third favorite song on the, it's, on the album. It's, I'm surprised it's hilarious that, I, that I, I'm surprised that I like it as much the lyrics well and it's yeah. all about how how uh, wonderful a uh, lover he is. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. So yeah, you think he's, he's Dr. Maybe, then you good? need to talk about how you don't need any medicine because I'm so good. And yeah. then, and then <laughs> talk yeah. about getting your family and your sisters and brothers out of the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind coming. As um, long as they, they're not here. Just, just Christmas and Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's got a serious medical condition. They just be treated. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here's uh, what I think is one of the more weaker. This is a mess to me. This next song. She didn't need to do this. But if I good times by Sam, this is a, a song written by Sam Cook. Um, it's a song I absolutely love, and I love it when Sam Cooke does it. Um, and I wish I didn't know that this version existed. Um, it's trying too hard. Yeah, you're right, right. That's exactly right. And and one of the things that Aretha Franklin's not good at effortless delivery, and that's one of the things that Sam Cooke is excels at. Um, um, well, I'm I'm the outsider on this one. This song and the other Sam Cooke song on here mm-hmm. are songs that Sam Cooke wrote that transcend Sam Cooke. Most of his songs, I don't think they do. I think they're his, definitely his property. But it's always treacherous to sing a song that a perfect singer's already sung. But I mm-hmm. I think she gets away with it, and that is it is necessary to have something like this at this point of the album because you need to do you need to change up that 
I'll agree I, with you there. Yeah, but. I agree with that. But I think I again, I think this was a miss. You you uh, and now I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack when we get to the last song of this album. But if you're gonna cover Sam Cooke, you and that's again, I agree with you, Doug. It's treading in treacher, treacherous water. You got to do think, a better. You got to be do a better job in this. Well, one of the things that, that I think that she misses on this, to me, it gets to be a mess at some point. Yeah, and I agree with that a hundred percent. I think that I mean that's one of the things that Sam Cook never ever did. Like he, he knew exactly what he was doing every time he sang, and I think that Aretha Franklin, who's covered a Sam Cook song well, uh. I know a local artist who does an amazing version of Cupid. That's that guy is at your party, right? That's right. I guess Tem- the Temptations job. Temptations did a great job of Cupid. Um, oh, look, uh, there, there is hard. There is a song that we're going to get to on this album. What about Art Garfunkel? What did no. Art Garfunkel sing? <laughs> what, don't know much about his. Oh, he had a yeah. Big hit with that. Yeah. I'm not too sure how much of y'all's uh, dislike for that is the fact that it's Sam Cooke she's going up against. I, I think it's tough to disengage from that. I agree with I, you. I agree with you. Except, yeah. Doug, when we get to the last song on the album, because if that were the case, I would have the same reaction to that, and boy, well, do I not have song's... the same reaction to that. But it's just so <laughs> tough. That song's like Amazing Grace. I mean, Cover it's so much bigger just... than Sam Cooke. But cover songs are so, so difficult, especially when you've got, you're trying to cover Sam Cooke. I can understand covering Dylan. There's people that do Dylan songs you think better she than Dylan. Cover uh, another R&B artist like Otis Redding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, look what she, she did to that. It's not that she, well, most of these songs on this album are, are done by somebody else. Well, one thing she didn't do on uh, Good Times that she did do on, uh, respect is she didn't alter it enough well and that may be that i wonder if that yeah i wonder if that's the issue is that it's right. not it's it's a little too much of a straight cover that um it, it, that but it again, sounds like i a, think she's trying yeah. too hard on and and it's and it does get a little sloppy in a way that to me is not great yeah. um right. but that may be you may have you may have a point there doug i don't know all right Let's move on to uh, the song three, side <laughs> two. Do right, woman. Do right, man. She's flesh and blood, just like a man. If you wanna do right, hold a This song, the first time I ever heard it was in 1984, and it was sung by a Texan by the name of Willie Nelson. This is uh, <laughs> on his "Always on My Mind" album, I think. Is that right? Um, yeah, and it was, album. and that out, al- and that version of it, I think, is based on the fantastic burrito, Flying Burrito Brothers version of the song, which I yeah. think probably is the the one of the greatest examples of exactly what Graham Parsons was trying to do by mixing soul and country music, that, that version of do right, do right woman by the burritos is just spectacular. Um, that being said, the song is amazing. 
with one exception. I hate the background singing on it. I hate it. Uh, tell they disagree with you, I, but I, I I don't know another version. I mean, this was the version I grew up with. I loved her vocals on it. I loved the background vocals. I loved the it, organ it's, it's piano sound, fueled tune. The background vocals loved... sound like an alarm going off to me. No, nope, 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 <laughs> not at all. Do right, do right, do. I mean, that's if you could make that a ringtone or something. It's 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 it's, that's a it's good idea, Tony. Jarring no. and chirpy, especially no. with how, how the especially the way she's singing this song. It's like getting it's like you're getting into this groove, and then someone smacks you upside the head with a plate. Oh, uh, but the thing I love about this song is is that there was another. We talked about this earlier. The musicianship is so restrained. I, I don't have then anything the vocals, bad to say about this song except for the background vocals. I have got I, I, I've got nothing bad to say. This is to me one of the most perfect songs ever recorded. Think about what this song would sound like if it was just her, or if the vac- background vocals like were too. slightly more restrained. I would like it, but I don't think I would like it as much. I mean, the uh. to me, the power from this song comes from the uh, the choices of notes that are sung. That are, that are sung, not necessarily from the musicians. It, it comes from the way that the what the singers are are hitting. And well, are, one of the things that I think Tony's hitting on is this is one of the ones that's the most laid back. Yeah, for Aretha Franklin's voice, right? She doesn't do any woo, any no of that no voice. histrionics. Which she, she this does. is her Mississippi on your mind. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a good, that's and, a good point. Yeah. So I do good understand comparison. why you wouldn't want that interrupt right. with right. Uh, the the backing vocals. Well, I, don't I, know. I, I love I love this song. I, I that's the thing that bothers but you me. Know, I mean, I love that kind of Andrew Sisters sort that of. That doesn't sound like the Andrew Sisters <laughs> at all. <laughs> no, but I but I do love when. I, I love that up, too. My yeah, favorite, some of my favorite Christmas music kinda, is Bing Crosby yeah. and the Andrews Sisters. But this is like it's like they she her sister said, I want to be on this song, and they're like, okay. And then she steps up to the mic and tries uh, to overdo uh, it. Listen, again, I, I think it. the reason I have the reaction is because I love this song so much and I love her voice on it. I love everything about it. Yeah, that I don't I hate the fact that there's something right in the middle of the chorus that just takes me out of the enjoyment of it. Yeah, I mean, I well, absolutely I love the vocals. Everything about I, this song. I think it has to do with it's this the gospel thing coming in again. Yeah. And well, if you've well, got a rate of Franklin's ears that's how music has sounded your whole life. I guess yeah. so. I guess but so. I, I, don't I also know. I, I get what Tony's saying because if if they made that record with just Aretha and her piano, mm-hmm. uh, that oh, would right. that would be a, a beautiful thing. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. Version. Yeah, that would be um, fantastic. It's just to switch gears for a minute. This is the song that they were recording when her husband got in a fight with Ken Laxton <laughs> at four o'clock in the morning. And I think he punched Rick Hall too, the, the famous yeah. studio boss. They had a good fight on the balcony of the fifth floor um, yep. hotel. And uh, I think they did one Wexler more begged Hall not to go and try to make things better. Well, <laughs> I, I think so the, they get in this fight and she and her husband hop on the plane. I think Jerry Wexler goes with them, right? They leave. And then she disappears for a couple of weeks. I think he's like trying to figure out Jerry Wexler's trying to figure out what the next steps are. Yeah. Finally gets her into the studio 
he's like, we got to get these muscle shoals guys up here. So he gets all of those guys too. Yeah. 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 They, they, wrote, got, they uh, went to the airport separately. Yeah. They wrote and thing and that was it. When, by the time Wexler talked to her again, they were no longer together. And so this is the, this, the, that incident is why the rest of the album was not done in Alabama. It was done in, uh, done in New, New York, York and Atlantic studios yeah. in New York. And Neil Young called up and said he was going to, uh, boycott if they continue to work in alabama <laughs> well that's one of the, the strange things that there's there's a lot of a lot of albums that originated in muscle shoals that actually got recorded at atlantic studios is that we have ken laxton to blame for all of those i don't know but um dusty in memphis was not recorded in memphis it was actually recorded in um New York. Well, Beaver Terlingua wasn't recorded in Terlingua, so yeah. <laughs> there you are. Song number four, side two, save Gloria. me. Listen, the, the, the fact of the matter is that that song, the Gloria by them predates the version this song is based on, I think, by at least a year, if not two. I don't know. I have. Yeah, yeah. this was yeah. this was a song. When was Gloria written? 64 is when it came out. OK, it came out. This song, this is based on Help Me. If you ever listen, if you, you listen to the song, it's a song by Ray oh, Sharp. On, um, I started looking up. Okay, I said so people have got to be talking about about this. this being Gloria, right? And it was, yeah. um, it's actually getting ripped off of another song that was ripping off Gloria. Well, Help yeah. Me was released in '66. I mean, this is a rewrite of Help Me, That's hence right. the name Save Me. Um, yeah. and this and uh, and what's interesting about that is that King Curtis plays on that version of Help Me that that's Ray Sharp. Oh, really? Song, and wow. It is the very first or one of the very first, if not the first recording that has Hendrix on it. Oh, really? The, the help yeah. me version. Hendrix plays guitar on it because um, he played with King Curtis. But yeah, it's um, it, yeah, it's essentially a rewrite of that, which is so funny because I, I, I was curious if that if that riff was like just a kind of a, tr a, a blues trope. That's right. why I looked yeah. it up. I thought you've ever heard of the biblical um textual criticism on the bible and the <laughs> and the q document yeah they say did mm -hmm. <laughs> is matthew copy and mark oh yeah, mark yeah, yeah. And matthew right. both copy a document that's since been lost yeah. so yeah. i spent about a week looking for the q document for this to see if uh van morrison was taking something that they were borrowing from too but I never could find anything. I don't. I said. think. I think everything points to them. Yeah, literally yeah. to them. Yeah, I do. I, literally to them. Yeah. Now, Jam, this chord progression sounds like it's three chords over and over and over again for the whole song. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much a groove song. I mean, this is probably. I mean, if this is the most James Brown sounding song on the album. Uh, it's a little slower. I guess we have to go through his catalog now to see if he had anything. 
but yeah, there's just and it, it's a pretty <laughs> short song too. It, it it just I love it. I do too. It's it it well, and I, I love I, it. So how the horn, this, this is my love it. this is my favorite horn part on the on the album. I well, love uh, that, the horn the horn interplay on this song is probably the best on the album. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's just a you know it. But but every, the song the song itself sort of lends itself to that you know in a way that some well of the other I mean songs don't. one of the things that this song this this whole album has going for it is there's highlights on the instrumentation not just the singing but there's just like the arrangements there's highlights there's just always a oh i'm getting bored with this oh wait a minute nope there's something well and and that that to me again coming from a a a very uh um sort of unsophisticated r&b ear the horns on this album seem to me to be very much of that kind of Atlantic sound, that real yeah. bright. Heavy oh yeah. Horn. And I just love that laid back rhythm section that, that happens where they don't, where the guitars like, Hey, the guitar is going to take an amazing guitar solo. And it, it's well, like it's playing such a simple part. It's yeah. almost the rhythm section itself. Right. Where the guitar is part of the rhythm section. And I, I think that Jerry Wexler is probably one of the best, people in the world that harnessing that and and making the horn like everything about this whole album is so laid back yeah i like it because it's what you said it lays they lay out a groove yeah and aretha franklin uh it gives her voice the freedom yeah It's, it's like when someone puts down a really nice well it's like uh back again to uh all along the watchtower you mm-hmm. have that simple chord progression, and Jimi Hendrix is able to get all yes. over that and do all kinds of crazy things. Right. And she's doing that with her voice on this song. Yeah. 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 All right. Last song on the album, song five, side two, <laughs> a change is going to come. I was born by the river in a little tent. Just like the river I've been running ever since He said it's been a So before we talk about this I, I need to tell you guys a story There are um, So this is the song that I had the epiphany on and 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 why it's such a weird thing was I had been listening to this album on Amazon um, since we decided to do it. And for some reason on my phone, when you pull this album up on Amazon, it starts with drown in my own tears, not with respect. So, and I didn't listen to this album. I probably listened to it about seven or eight times and I kept getting interrupted right around, um, right around, uh, I don't know, probably good times or do right woman. So Mm -hmm. I and I and I'll freely honest, I did not look at the track listing on the song. So I had no idea the Sam Cook song was on this album. So that, mm-hmm. that's just to put something in context. I'm at the track with my wife, 5:15 in the morning. I'm running around the track, and this song comes on, and I have to stop. Hmm. And I get covered in goosebumps. 
I had no idea this song was coming on and it hit me. I can't explain it. I had to stop moving and listen to the song. And then I replayed it to see if it had the same effect and it had the exact same effect on me. And after that, I never listened to this album the same way. Because up until that point, it was a chore for me to listen to this album, and I didn't get it. And then I heard her version of "A Change Is Going to yeah. Come," and something happened. I don't know what to. Exp- I don't know how to explain what happened. It was so weird. A, especially since I was, I I disliked her version of "Good Time" so much. I was like, how could anybody cover right. a Sam Cooke song? And she changes the lyrics on this. It's yeah. much more personal. It's much mm-hmm. more. Um, you know, it's much more sort of um, empowering. Uh, not yeah. to say Sam's Cook song version isn't. It's. I mean, it's amazing, but his is more of kind of a global thing. Hers is a very personal. I mean, she says, "My change is going to come." You know, right. she changes that. I don't right. know what happened, but it was like somebody smacked me over the head with a baseball bat. And ever since that, I have listened to this album with different ears, and I have. I, I've gotten it to in a way that I never got it before. And I've enjoyed listening to this album since that happened where I was not prior to that. I had, it was just, that's it was interesting. Bizarre. It was bizarre. It's your gateway song. Well, Lindsay said that she said that was your, she said those exact words. That was your gateway song to Aretha. Cause Lindsay has been talking to me. The reason I brought that up earlier about people telling me that I should like her is Lindsay loves Aretha Franklin. And she's been trying to get us to do an album and saying that. And I, and she knew how much I did not want to do this album. And, uh, and, and I'm just surprised at how much I've enjoyed listening to it since that moment. It was just weird. I don't know how to explain it. I've told at least four different people who could understand that to a certain extent that that happened. I don't know how to explain it. It was like in a real, like a religious moment. It was like Saul's conversion or something. It was bizarre. Tony nailed it. Yeah, um, he really did. He, he said she changed it. And yeah. It turned into something much different because it was three years later, right? After he died. Also, think about the rest of this album. Yeah. About this push and pull with romance where she's letting herself get steamrolled. This is the other, this is the more serious, thoughtful version of respect. Absolutely. 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 It, It ends. It opens and ends on the same thing. She said at the beginning, she's going, listen to me. I'm going to be respected. And at the end of the album, she's saying, well, the change is happening now. And uh, I guess this is when she's left her abusive husband. The guys have their songs for breakups. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they're really very different than girl breakup songs it's all about empowerment with girls it is it's about empowerment and uh accepting yourself but but there's a vulnerableness to this song that's not in respect that line where she's talking about i mean she changes that line about you know she completely omits the line about the theater that is in the sam cook song and then she changes the line about the 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 one about my brother you know i went to my brother and asked him to help me please you know, mm-hmm. and Sam Cook, the guy is no, the brother is nowhere. He's not willing to do it for obvious racial reasons. She changes it here. He says, good sister, I'd like to, but I'm not able. I mean, it's, a, I, I don't know if it's just simply a breakup song. I mean, I think part of that's going you know, on there. But simply anything. 
but, but it is that it element is, here that I don't hear in Sam Cooke. I don't know how to describe this song. I, I can't, you can't use a word to describe. It's, it's a remarkable, it is, it's transformative. It's a remarkable rendition, powerful rendition of the song. I never in a million years, because I think a change is going to come by Sam. I, I never knew this existed. This version of the song existed. That's, I mean, that's sad. To I say. didn't either. I really but, didn't either until like, I, like two years ago, I guess. But, but um, that ver- Sam Cooke's version has always been one of those songs that I can't listen to without tearing up. It's so powerful yeah. coming from him. And, and I cannot believe somebody could do a version of it that hit me differently, but just as powerfully. It just is. I, I just can't I, go. I can't stop talking about that. It was just such a weird experience. I can't well, this believe has to be. it's not. It seems like a song that we would be. Over it would have overexposed itself to us by now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it hasn't at all. No, I don't get that. I mean, it's, it's just it's better than give peace a chance. You know, it's just just it's oh. <laughs> well, and and then <laughs> and and then I don't want to. I don't know when to, I don't want to neglect the end, the way she introduces the song either. Yeah, which is talking about you know Sam Cooke had, it was dead by this point, and she you know, says there's an old friend that once heard him say something yeah. that touched my heart, and it began this way. And even then, when that was when she was singing that part, I didn't know the song was coming up. And then when she goes, "I was born," but I, I that's, oh my, that's god. powerful, isn't it? Oh my god, yeah, and, yeah, and to know that those two were were very so close good friends. friends, yeah. And and yeah. I assume that she would have liked it to have been more than good friends. Yeah. Well, uh, I can't imagine had he been alive, he would not been blown away by this version of the song. I, it's it's this is obvious a tribute, not not only, but it is a right. tribute. Right. And it, there's just so many layers that give it power. Yeah. 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 But what I <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> Wexler has this thing in the can with that on it. He must yeah. have been going nuts thinking, yeah. what have I wrought? <laughs> yeah. I just blew John just Hammond out of the water. The whole, the whole thing's a monster. Yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and more guys have listened to hundreds of albums that have been, that have adopted all of this stuff yeah. to, to, to have heard it when nothing else was out there like it. I just can't yeah. imagine. And hmm. uh, but she did have some big hits later on. Uh, yeah, I think you're about a few. Yeah, but after that, after that five year run or five album run with Atlantic, her everything started coming apart for her. Yeah, but she did get some uh, occasional shot in the arm, and then thank God she made a appearance in blues brothers so i could find out about the voice <laughs> well that's the end of our uh look at aretha franklin's i never loved a man the way that i love you so at this point where you give our ratings of this album so i'm going to start with tony um this is a little bit of an epiphany album for you but um we give two ratings one is our uh, cold-hearted critic rating, and the other is our an emotional rating. Like, what would we give it? How often do we think we would listen to it again? So I'm going to ask you, Tony, what are your ratings? 
Well, unlike I'll start with my critic rating, and unlike Rolling Stone, which said uh, when they uh, reviewed this album in '67 that uh, it the the lack of versatility of the sidemen uh, was a downside, uh, oh. and that it lacked uh, production polish. Uh, yeah, Rolling Stone is infamous for making crappy first, initial reviews. Go yeah. and then and then oh, t- it's. It's really amazing what difference hindsight or what 2020 hindsight does for Rolling Stone. But anyway, um, uh, there is critically, there's nothing on this album that uh, that I would dock it for, except those moments when the backing vocals just don't do it for me. Now, I understand what Doug said, and this is my own bias because I'm not coming from a gospel background, at least not uh, R&B gospel. Um and uh, and because of that, I, I don't think it's quite a five, but it's pretty, pretty damn close. I'd give it a four or eight. Um, so my personal review is a little more difficult for me because I have spent a good chunk of my life uh, talking about Aretha Franklin in not quite as disdainful tones as I did the role do the Rolling Stones, but almost like I oh, this is not my thing. I can't do this. And I I am shocked by what happened listening to this album. I am absolutely shocked by it. Um, I don't know how often I'll listen to it on my own. I do want to go back and revisit it. And I do want to go back and listen to her other stuff um, because I, I feel like I've, like I've missed a whole slew of things. It really, I should not have missed in my life. Um, But, you know, it's hard to toss out my, kind of original stupid bias on this stuff. So I'm not, I think I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a four with a caveat. I may change that. I was going to give it lower than that, but I don't think I can. I think I've got with the way this thing hit me, I've got to give it a four and uh, with a caveat that that's likely to bump up significantly, the more I revisit it in the, you know, later on, but yeah, that's my rating. Sorry for the long winded (laughs) review. All right. Well, Thanks, Tony. Uh, I'll go next since Doug picked this. Um, I'm going to go with my cold-hearted critic review first. Um, There is not much like a knock on this album. The only thing I think where I would dock a half star is her version of Good Times. I think that's a little bit of a mess. Um, So I'm going to give it a four or five as a critic. Rating, but I do think this is one of the best albums ever made. I think it's, you know, Rolling Stone put it somewhere in their, their top 500 albums. And I, I don't disagree with that. I think it's a fan. Eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. Right. Um, as my own, uh, my personal rating, this is going to be a little bit difficult for me because I am really starting to get into this, this music more. And I don't like the stacks Atlantic stuff. I'm, I'm just keep coming back to, I keep, and it's been within like the last year or so. Um, I've been listening to more stuff like um, Otis Redding. I've been listening to, uh, Al Green and just get a little bit, you know, it's just a, a genre of music that I just haven't explored. And um, 
this has been a really good gateway album as <laughs> uh you said tony um i there was there was nothing about this album other than good times that i was not impressed with so i'm gonna give it the same rate i'm gonna give it a four or five all right doug moving on to you what say you this is easy um my cold-hearted critic that hates puppies and children um five if this isn't a five-star album i don't know what album is a five-star album american Um, beauty it is (laughs) what i said for them too (laughs) i mean american beauty is a five-star album sorry tell me which one is if that's not uh (laughs) yeah this is right up there with that two albums that are very different and i think so highly of uh that's the critic uh on a personal note, I guess I would give it uh, a four nine, just because I don't like <laughs> the feel good <laughs> song. <laughs> I, it, it just <laughs> it's, it's it, and that's that's uh, that's personal because I think it's ridiculous that her abusive husband's writing these lyrics about himself. <laughs> but yeah. maybe it's if it was funny, it would be very funny if it was meant to be. Um, right. So anyway, I'm I'm completely in love with this record. Uh, will I listen to it again? Uh, I'm gonna listen to it again tonight. Yeah. Um, Tony got me so stirred up on the change is gonna come. I <laughs> I'm gonna have to hear it. Uh, one one of the things about this album, there's a couple of there's some things out there uh, that stir my patriotism. And this album makes me, I didn't have anything to do with this album, but you know, you can be proud of things that you don't have anything to do with. This album makes me so proud to be an American because it came out from nowhere. Um, This is impossible. No other country on the face of the earth could create this. This is us nowhere else could this album exist and um it's one of those it's just like uh hearing the national anthem at the army navy game or any of those things that make me tear up when i think about this is the best our country our country does some one things that are wonderful and this album is just a beautiful statement on what a wonderful country this is and what wonderful people we create and the wonderful yep. art we create. So there's a lot of that tied into this, which yep. this, I agree. You know, there's other times I felt that love, yeah. love the album. So glad we had a chance to do it. Yep. Well, I, I, you know, I've, I've said this before um, on, on other things. Um, I think we've all had surprises of stuff that we brought up. Oh, I, yeah. I was not looking forward to doing this at all. <laughs> Um, probably less so than I was the Stevie Ray Vaughan album, because at least I had some familiarity with that. But, um, yeah, this, this surprised me. Um, I, I, I don't want to just repeat what I've said a billion times tonight, but it just surprised me. Um, no, there are plenty of albums that we've talked about. I didn't know that I've found pleasantly surprising that I like them. Tom Waits being the one that pops to my mind the most. The, I I've never I can't remember the last time I had a musical experience like when I heard her version of Change is going to come. 
All right. So usually at this point in the show, we uh, have a recommendation and I'm going to recommend a documentary that came out, I guess, about 10 years ago on the Muscle Shoals Band. It's called The Swampers. Uh, You can look it up on Netflix or Amazon Prime. If you want to just see a group of guys that have played on so many or so many hits that you've heard, but you don't know about this band. It's they have done so much, and you'll hear about a lot of the guys we've mentioned on this podcast. But it's about a two-hour documentary, and uh, it's just a bunch of down-home guys that just made some amazing music with a bunch of amazing people, including the Rolling Stones, including Willie Nelson and uh, Aretha Franklin. I'm going to recommend, we're doing two recommendations tonight. We're not charging anyone any more than a normal podcast. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to recommend an album I already spoke about, and that's uh, Aretha Franklin's gospel comeback to a gospel album. Uh, most of these stars leave gospel and never come back, but she came back stronger than ever in 1972. And she did an, an album called Amazing Grace with James Cleveland. It's uh, it's it's my favorite album of hers, and uh, it just just download um, Mary, don't you weep? I think you'll you'll get the get what it's all about. It's a double album. It went double platinum. Uh, everybody's got a review about how wonderful it is. Don't moan. Once again, that's Aretha Franklin singing Amazing Grace with James Cleveland and the Southern California Community Choir recorded live at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, which is in California. So thanks for listening to this episode of This is Final Tap. Um, We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. We've got a website tappingvinyl.com. It's being updated constantly by our co-host, Tony. You can contact us there, leave us a comment, request albums you would like for us to review in a future podcast. And you'll also find links to all of our past episodes and recommendations. We're also on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. And we have a Facebook group page. And if you know friends that really like the LP format, we would really appreciate you letting them know about this podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcasting platforms. Next week, we'll be looking at an album by Fountains of Wayne. Their very popular album, Welcome Interstate Managers.
Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Final Tap for all the podcasts go to 11 and suck it to me. Reminds me of uh, you seeing uh, a party where the cops come and mm-hmm. the person least capable of addressing the police is the one that volunteers to go <laughs> be the spokesperson <laughs> for the party.